Chapter Four, Part One of Bacteria in Daily Life by Grace Coleridge Franklin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bacteriology and Water. Whilst the Hamburg cholera disaster of eighteen ninety two will certainly rank in the annals of epidemiology as one of the great catastrophes of recent times, it will also be memorable as one of the most instructive which has ever taken place. It is perhaps not unnatural that this should be the case, for since the last European epidemic of importance, our study of the principles of sanitation has received a new impetus, and this impetus must be in great part ascribed to the science of bacteriology, which has sprung into existence within the past two decades. We have now no longer to confront mysterious and unknown morbific material, but have been brought face to face with some of the most dreaded foes of the human race. We are no longer groping, as it were, in the dark, but have a definite object, in the shape of well-recognized microorganisms, associated with specific zymotic diseases, for our common crusade. But it is the light which has been thrown for the first time upon numerous intricate problems connected with the sanitary aspects of public water supplies, which constitutes not the least important of the many services rendered by bacteriology to the public. Perhaps one of the most striking of these may be considered the insight which it has afforded into the value of various processes of water purification, furnishing us with the most subtle and searching tests, surpassing in delicacy those of the most refined chemical methods. Thus for years the processes of sand filtration, as practiced at waterworks in dealing with river and other surface waters, were regarded by chemical experts as of but little or no value, because on chemical analysis but little or no difference was found to exist between the filtered and unfiltered samples, respectively. Water engineers started this method of water treatment in London as far back as the year 1839, with no other object than the distribution of a water bright and clear on delivery. But unknown to themselves, they were carrying out a system of water purification, the nature and extent of which has been left to the infant science of bacteriology to unravel and reveal. It was in the year 1885 that Dr. Koch's new bacteriological water tests were introduced, and systematically applied for the first time to the London water supply by Professor Percy Franklin, and the entirely unexpected result obtained, that whereas the River Thames water at Hampton contained as many as 1,644 microorganisms in about 20 drops, this water, after passing through the sand filters, possessed as few as 13 in the same number of drops. The remarkable purification effected in the treatment of the water was thus very clearly shown, and an entirely new aspect was given to the processes of sand filtration. The importance of these results was quickly appreciated by the official water examiner, the late Sir Francis Bolton, and at the request of the local government board, regular monthly bacteriological examinations of the London water supply were conducted. It is amusing to recall that, at the time when these results were first published, the public, instead of being reassured by these facts, were greatly alarmed. And it is a matter of history that the mere demonstration of the presence of microorganisms in drinking water caused a fall in the price of several of the water company's stocks. These investigations, which have since been confirmed by others, both in this country and on the continent, have clearly shown, then, that sand filtration, when carefully carried out, offers a most remarkable and obstinate barrier to the passage of microbes, and there was every justification in presuming 
that if disease organisms should at any time be present in the raw, untreated water, they would also undergo a similar fate, as there was no reasonable ground for supposing that they would behave any differently from the ordinary harmless water bacteria. But this was a hypothesis only, and however satisfactory experiments in this direction made in the laboratory might prove, there was always the uncertainty attaching to a fact which had not passed through the ordeal of practical experience. The answer to this searching and all-important question has been furnished in the most conclusive manner by the history of the cholera epidemic in Hamburg and Altona, respectively, in the year 1892. These two cities are both dependent upon the river Elbe for their water supply. But whereas in the case of Hamburg the intake is situated above the city, the supply for Altona is abstracted below Hamburg after it has received the sewage of a population of close upon 800,000 persons. The Hamburg water was, therefore, to start with, relatively pure when compared with that destined for the use of Altona. But what was the fate of these two towns as regards cholera? Situated side by side, absolutely contiguous, in fact, with nothing in their surroundings or in the nature of their population to especially distinguish them, in the one cholera swept away thousands, whilst in the other the scourge was scarcely felt. In Hamburg, the deaths from cholera amounted to 1,250 per 100,000, and in Altona to but 221 per 100,000 of the population. So clearly defined, moreover, was the path pursued by the cholera, that although it pushed from the Hamburg side right up to the boundary line between the two cities, it there stopped. This being so striking that in one street, which for some distance marks the division between these cities, the Hamburg side was stricken down with cholera, whilst that belonging to Altona remained free. The remarkable fact was brought to light that in those houses supplied with the Hamburg water, cholera was rampant, while in those on the Altona side and furnished with the Altona water, not one case occurred. We have seen that the Hamburg water, to start with, was comparatively pure when compared with the foul liquid abstracted from the Elbe by Altona. But whereas, in the one case, the water was submitted to exhaustive and careful filtration through sand before delivery, in Hamburg the Elbe water was distributed in its raw condition as drawn from the river. But further testimony was afforded later to the truth of these results, for during the winter, whilst the cases of cholera had almost completely died out in Hamburg, suddenly a most unexpected and unaccountable recrudescence of the epidemic occurred, and this time in Altona. This outbreak could not be traced to any direct infection from Hamburg, but must have arisen in Altona itself. In all, about 47 cases were recorded between December 23, 1892, and February 12, 1893. A searching inquiry was instituted, and it was ascertained that the number of bacteria found in the filtered water, usually about 50, had, during these months, risen to as many as 1,000 and more in about 20 drops of water, clearly indicating that the filtration of the water was not being efficiently carried out. That this was actually the case was proved by the fact that one of the sand filters which had been cleaned during the frost had become frozen over, and was not able to retain the bacteria. That the outbreak did not become more serious, Koch ascribes to the fact that this, to all intents and purposes, raw, untreated water was largely diluted with efficiently filtered water before delivery. Dr. Koch, who personally superintended this inquiry in Altona, 
traced another local outbreak of cholera in the city to the use of a well water obviously open to pollution which was used by about 270 persons in one of the houses employing this water and in the immediate vicinity of the well a boy died of cholera on january 23rd and during the week following a number of cases occurred amongst persons using this source on discovering the cholera bacilli in this polluted water its contamination was placed beyond doubt and five days after the well was closed all cases ceased in the locality there cannot be any longer a doubt as to the value of sand filtration as a means of water purification but the responsibility which we have seen attaches to this treatment of water cannot be exaggerated for whilst when efficiently pursued it forms a most important barrier to the dissemination of disease germs the slightest imperfection in its manipulation is a constant menace during any epidemic it is as a rule during the winter months that the largest number of bacteria are present in the filtered water and it is therefore of especial importance that during this season when the raw river water is generally richest in bacterial life and when therefore the filters are most taxed and the consequences of frost are most to be apprehended that those entrusted with this responsible task should be unremitting in their endeavours to obtain a good filtrate that waters submitted to exhaustive natural filtration such as those derived from deep wells sunk into the chalk and usually almost entirely devoid of bacterial life may at times become the carriers of disease has been proved by the disastrous outbreak of typhoid fever which occurred some years ago at worthing this town has long been supplied with water of the very finest quality for dietetic purposes and nothing could have been more unexpected than this most fatal epidemic it must however be borne in mind that such deep well waters are not necessarily immaculate for in the event of any fault in the water-bearing strata occurring the filtration becomes inefficient and the water may then as in the case of worthing be the bearer and disseminator of zymotic disease the bacteriological methods for the examination of water although when first introduced but a few years ago were lightly looked upon and by many opposed have now become of paramount importance in all questions of water purification the immense mass of evidence of a purely bacteriological character which was taken and indeed required by the royal commissioners of eighteen ninety three on the london water supply indicates clearly enough the change which has taken place in the public estimation of the value of these methods and it is highly significant that in their report the commissioners lay stress upon the importance of extensive storage and efficient filtration two factors the meaning and worth of which rest almost entirely on the results of bacteriological research cholera is not however the only water-carried disease which has borne eloquent testimony to the services rendered by the efficient purification of public water supplies the experience of the state of massachusetts in america in regard to typhoid fever and drinking water is also exceedingly instructive massachusetts has by creating a board of health and affording the same every facility for the prosecution of hygienic investigations of the greatest importance laid the whole scientific world under a deep obligation the reports issued have a very wide circulation and embrace a variety of subjects but second to none in interest and importance is the account of the experimental work carried out by the officials of the board on the purification of water and sewage these experiments have become classical and have been conducted with a zeal and thoroughness which deserve the highest praise it is in looking at the results achieved by the city of lawrence 
in regard to its water supply that some conception can be obtained of the immense importance to the community of the scientific experiments conducted in the state laboratory. No expense has been spared, and for years past elaborate and costly experiments on a large scale have been carried out to determine the most efficient manner in which water may be rendered fit and safe for drinking. Now the death rate in a community from typhoid fever may be taken as an index of the general sanitary conditions prevailing in such a community. The character of the public water supply, not without justification, being regarded as a prime factor in its determination. One of the most significant points in the sanitary history of the state of Massachusetts is the almost uniform decline in the mortality from typhoid fever in proportion as measures have been taken to introduce better water supplies and to improve those which already exist. Thus, in the twenty years, from 1856 to 1876, the death rate from this disease was 8.6 per 10,000 of population, whilst in the period from 1876 to 1895 it had fallen to 4.1 per 10,000. The improvement in respect of typhoid mortality being coincident with the improvement made during the last 20 years in providing public water supplies. In the words of one of the state reports, quote, The death rate from typhoid fever has generally fallen as the percent of the population supplied with public water has risen, for the reason that the majority of the deaths from this disease have occurred among communities and portions of communities not supplied with public water. Unquote. That this improvement is being maintained is seen from the fact that in the four-year period 1896 through 99, the deaths from typhoid fever in Massachusetts were further reduced to 2.6 per 10,000. It is, however, in the city of Lawrence that the most striking insight is obtained as to the manner in which typhoid fever may be controlled by conditions surrounding the water supply to the community. Thus, whereas the death rate from typhoid fever reached a mean of 11.2 per 10,000 in 1886-90, through 90, it fell to 7.7 .7 in 1891-95 through 95, and to 2.5 in 1896-99. through 99. It was in the autumn of the year 1893 that the raw river water supplied to the city from the Merrimack River was first begun to be filtered, and since that time the sand filters have been subjected to systematic and most elaborate bacterial supervision, and improvements have been constantly introduced so as to secure the most efficient purification possible of the water before distribution. And the results are reflected in the marked diminution in typhoid fever which has followed these strenuous efforts to obtain the best water supply available. The splendid example set by the state of Massachusetts in promoting the welfare of the people by the encouragement of original researches in practical hygiene has stimulated other American states to create boards of health and enact laws for the protection of their rivers and streams. In view of all that has been done to promote sanitary science in the United States, it is surprising to learn that Lake Michigan, which receives the untreated sewage of municipalities and small towns aggregating over two million people, still furnishes Chicago with its drinking water and undergoes no preliminary purification before distribution. The city of Chicago, by constructing the Chicago Drainage and Ship Canal, opened in January 1900, has diverted its own sewage from Lake Michigan, but this great sewer has only been made possible because of its advantages as a commercial waterway, and it has been stated on high authority that every project for the drainage of Chicago into the Illinois, which has not recognized the waterway features, has been destined to failure. 
Dr. Egan of the Illinois State Board of Health, however, points out that, quote, with the present increase in population, the Great Lakes, if they continue to be used as common sewers, will soon become totally unfit for use as drinking water, and one of two alternatives must be followed. Either every source of water supply must be filtered, or the sewage of the towns must be efficiently purified before it is allowed to flow into the lakes." Unquote. Doubtless the seeming inertia of the citizens of Chicago in the matter of filtering their water is attributable to the fact that already the authorities have expended $85 million in their waterworks and sewerage systems, which represents an investment of something over $50 per head of population, and that plans in connection with the Great Canal which has been described as, quote, the greatest feat of sanitary engineering in the world, unquote, and to which reference has already been made, will, when carried out, involve an expenditure of 30 or $40 million more. In the face of such burdens, even so prosperous a community as Chicago does not care to contemplate further capital charges. At any rate, until the unsatisfactory conditions shadowed by Dr. Egan become more pressing in regard to the source of their water supply. The systematic investigations carried out in the great institutes of health on the continent and elsewhere should surely make the sporadic work, as by comparison it must be designated, produced in this country, an eloquent argument for the creation of a British Imperial Board of Health, adequately endowed by the state, manned by the ablest investigators, and forming a centre for the prosecution of researches which in other countries, as in our own, have contributed so greatly to the health and welfare of mankind. Why should England forever have to knock at the door of foreign institutes for information and guidance in matters in which once she was the leader and enlightened example to every civilized country? The question of how far polluted water supplies, besides possessing the potentiality for spreading cholera and typhoid, may disseminate consumption, has been approached in a very instructive manner by Dr. Musehold of the German Imperial Board of Health. Some ten years ago, the discovery of the tubercle bacillus in water for the first time was announced by a Spanish investigator, Fernandez. The water containing the bacillus tuberculosis was derived from an open ditch, and hence had been doubtless exposed to contamination of diverse kinds. In the course of the elaborate experiments on London sewage and its treatment, carried out by Professor Frank Close, chief chemist to the London County Council, an instance was recently met with in which a guinea pig, inoculated with a portion of coke deposit derived from a bacterial sewage bed, died from typical tuberculosis, and sections of its organs showed the presence of numerous tubercle bacilli. Dr. Musehold has now submitted the whole question of the vitality of virulent tubercle bacilli present in the expectorations of consumptive persons in sewage, in river water, and on cultivated land, respectively, to an exhaustive examination and the novelty as well as importance of these researches merit their being carefully considered. In the first instance, tuberculosis sputum was introduced into river water in its natural condition, and as this water was abstracted from the river Spree in Berlin, it was exposed at any rate to a certain degree of surface contamination. In this water, kept in ordinary daylight, the tubercle bacilli remained alive and in a virulent condition for over five months in ordinary sewage for six and a half months. Some of the sewage-infected samples were left in the open air and exposed to ordinary meteorological conditions, but even the ordeal of getting frozen up in their surroundings did not in the slightest shorten the lease of virulence possessed by the tubercle bacilli. 
Some of this tubercle-infected sewage was poured over garden soil in which radishes were growing, and after the bacilli had spent 88 days in these surroundings, during which time they had experienced frost, snow, rain, and sunshine, they still retained their virulence. Of special interest are the investigations Dr. Musehold made to ascertain if the tubercle bacilli could be detected on the fields adjacent to a hospital for consumption, and irrigated with the sewage from the same. Not only were tubercle bacilli found, but they were also, as was to be expected from the laboratory experiments cited above, discovered in a highly virulent condition. That disease germs may be distributed with the vegetables grown on municipal sewage farms is not a mere whim or fancy of the fattest, but it is a very real danger, and must be regarded as a menace to the health of all who consume such articles as lettuces, radishes, celery, and other vegetables which are not first cooked before being placed on the table. This forcibly suggests the desirability of all expectorations from consumptive patients being thoroughly disinfected, or, in other words, deprived of their virulence before being admitted to sewage. The importance of such precautions being taken is borne out by the examinations of the clear effluent derived from the treatment of the sewage of a consumptive hospital, which revealed the presence of virulent tubercle bacilli, whilst they were also discovered in the bottom of a ditch conducting the effluent away. Such facts as these deserve the earnest attention of all public authorities, and it is to be hoped that the overwhelming evidence which is now available regarding the distribution and spartan character of the tubercle bacillus will lead to serious efforts being made to bestow upon it that measure of consideration which in the case of recognized zymotic diseases leads to the enactment of rules and regulations for the restriction at least of the fateful activities of these malignant foes of mankind before leaving the subject of bacteria in relation to water it will be interesting to glance at what is known regarding the attitude taken up by these minute forms of life towards that large and ever-increasing class of waters vaguely grouped together under the synonym of mineral waters the fortunes made in manufacturing artificially aerated waters and the mine of wealth contained in a new mineral spring are sufficient evidence of the popularity enjoyed by this description of beverage the beer and spirit statistics of the country and their contribution to the national revenue do not, however, permit us to indulge in the belief that this large consumption of harmless drinks is due to their displacing the use of intoxicants. The increasing sale of non-alcoholic beverages cannot in fact be taken as an index of the growing sobriety of a nation. Far more must the greater demand be attributed to the improvements in manufacture which have cheapened production and place what was formerly an article of luxury, almost prohibitive in price, and hence reserved for the few, within comparatively easy reach of the many. Perhaps also an increased sale may be assisted by a prevailing impression that by substituting carbonated for ordinary potable water, the risk of contracting zymotic disease is, if not altogether removed, at any rate very materially diminished. It will be therefore instructive to see how far this assumption is justified by actual facts. The first fact to be recognized is that the number of bacteria present may and does fluctuate between such wide limits as is represented by as few as three and as many as 100,000 being found in about 20 drops of artificially aerated waters. Seltzer water, manufactured from well water, was found by Sonke to contain numbers varying from 200 to 6,000 whilst when only distilled water was used, that is, water previously deprived of all bacterial life, 
only from 10 to 20 microbes were present. But an important and far too little recognized factor in the manufacture of aerated waters is the contamination which so frequently takes place subsequent to the initial purification of the water by sterilization. In some instances, this contamination is due to the storing of water before use in reservoirs, where an excellent opportunity is offered for microbial multiplication. Merkel found water which originally only boasted of from four to five bacteria per cubic centimeter, subsequently, when ready for distribution as seltzer water, contained considerably over 3,000. In this case, storage had been resorted to. Again, insufficient importance is attached to the efficient cleansing of the siphons on their return to the factory. The experiments made by Slater in this country and Abba in Italy have conclusively shown that the gaseous aeration of water exerts an inhibitory action on the growth of at least some varieties of water bacteria, for both these investigators found that in proportion as the amount of gas present was diminished by being allowed to escape, so was the multiplication of the bacteria present promoted and their numbers increased. Unsavory as may be the idea of swallowing down myriads of even harmless microbes, yet the real significance of the whole question from a hygienic point of view lies in the evidence as to the fate of disease germs in aerated waters. On this important matter there fortunately exists some precise and conclusive information in regard to the bacteria associated with two essentially water-borne diseases, that is, typhoid fever and cholera. The investigations made to test the vitality of the anthrax bacillus are of significance as again emphasizing the superior degree of vitality possessed by the spore over the bacillar form of this microorganism. But the chances of this disease being disseminated by water are usually regarded as too remote to excite much interest in the fate of the B. anthracis in seltzer water. It may, however, be mentioned that whereas the bacilli succumbed after being in the seltzer water from 15 minutes to an hour, the spores were still living after 154 days. Investigations on the vitality of cholera bacilli in aerated waters have been made by Hofstetter in Germany, by Slater in England, and by Abba in Italy, and these various authorities all agree that the lease of life of these microorganisms is a very short one in ordinary unsterilized carbonated waters, and that they are in fact destroyed in from half an hour to three hours. As regards typhoid bacilli, the case is different, for the same investigators found that in ordinary unsterilized aerated water, these bacteria can live as long as 11 days. In seltzer water, their vitality is not so marked, but even then it greatly exceeds that of the accommodating cholera microbes extending to five days. Thus, supposing typhoid bacilli to be present in the water employed for the manufacture of aerated waters, and we cannot afford to disregard such a possibility, we have no guarantee that such waters will be safe for drinking purposes unless a considerable period has been allowed to elapse between their production and consumption. It was considerations of this kind which led M. Duclos, the accomplished director of the Paris Pasteur Institute, to write now, some years ago, quote, Contentons-nous de conclure que l'usage de l'eau de sels recommandé en temps d'épidémie peut en effet être recommandable, surtout si on les virgule l'eau quelques jours. On a chance d'y voir diminuer ou même périr les germes nuisibles. On the whole, therefore, the scientific report on bacteria and artificially aerated waters may be regarded as a reassuring one, 
It is to be regretted, however, that in England we do not follow the example set by Italy, where the aerated water manufacturers are closely looked after by the state, and no factory may be opened unless a satisfactory guarantee can be given of the chemical and bacteriological purity of the water which is intended to be used, whilst the authorities must also be assured that the methods employed are satisfactory from a hygienic point of view. The sale of all aerated waters prepared from insanitary water supplies is strictly prohibited by the state. It will now be of interest to ascertain what is the result of the endeavors which have been made to explore the bacterial flora of those highly prized and largely circulated natural mineral waters, which abound in so many parts of the world, and are practically the making of so many health resorts. Perhaps the most exhaustive examinations of mineral water which have been so far made are those published by Dr. Eugenio Fazio, who studied the bacterial condition of some of the celebrated springs situated near Naples, Acasalamere, Thales, Acetosella, and Muraglion, care being taken to select examples of different types of water, samples being collected from colibiate, carbonated sulfur, and alkaline springs, respectively. All these various mineral waters were characterized by a remarkable paucity of bacteria. In the colibiate and alkaline springs, sometimes as few as two microbes only in a cubic centimeter were found and the largest number recorded only amounted to 45. The satisfactory significance of such figures will be appreciated when we realize that they rival very closely the numbers which characterize the purest spring and the deepest well water, and which are usually regarded as the aristocracy among drinking waters. Of special interest is Dr. Fazio's discovery that the variety of bacteria present in these waters is extremely restricted. As a rule, only three, or at most four, different kinds of bacteria being detected. This is also characteristic of the pure water derived from deep wells sunk into the chalk, usually but very few different kinds of bacteria being found amongst the limited number of their Lilliputian inhabitants, whilst in samples collected from rivers or other surface sources, especially those which have been polluted with sewage or similar refuse matters, the bacterial population is frequently as diverse as it is unwieldy. From the exacting point of view of the uncompromising bacteriologist, the most satisfactory waters in existence for drinking purposes should be those derived from sulfur springs. Dr. Fazio and other investigators have frequently found absolutely no bacteria whatever in these waters, and often only four in a cubic centimeter. When we remember the high temperature of so-called thermal sulfur waters, which in many cases reaches more than 50 degrees centigrade, it is perhaps surprising that even four individuals can be found in a cubic centimeter capable of withstanding the nauseous atmosphere of sulfuretted hydrogen in addition to such hot environment. Perhaps in the bacterial community these hot sulfur springs provide that place of punishment which figured so largely in the imagination of the early Christian fathers. Certain it is that in this bacterial hell, in the picturing of which so many of the old masters seem to have reveled, but very few individuals are to be found, and those which are there are almost entirely derived from one family. In giving way to the highly satisfactory results of these bacterial examinations in forming an estimate of the microbial quality of natural mineral waters, it must be borne in mind that these investigations were all made of the said waters in a state of nature straight from the source, and before they had undergone the barbarous ordeal of commercial manipulation such as the process of bottling. 
we are all of us sufficiently acquainted with the first principles of germ life to realize how deftly and how directly any inattention to hygienic details is reflected in the larder or the storeroom, and it requires but little stretch of the imagination to picture the bacterial armaments which would at once invade these peaceful waters on the first suggestion of relaxed vigilance, or removal of that rigid surveillance so essential for their protection and preservation. End of chapter 4